TBRI. 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 Trust-based relational intervention. TBRI is an attachment-based trauma-informed intervention that is designed to meet the complex needs of vulnerable children. TBRI uses empowering principles to address physical needs, connecting principles for attachment needs, and correcting principles to disarm fear-based behaviors. While TBRI is based on years of attachment, sensory processing, and neuroscience research, the heartbeat of TBRI is connection. Hello and welcome to the TBRI podcast. On this show, we talk all about TBRI, or Trust-Based Relational Intervention. We talk about different elements of the model itself, and also about how TBRI is applied in various communities of care and practice. I'm Emily Pickett, producer of the podcast, dropping in with a little bonus episode before we kick off season six of the TBRI podcast. Today's conversation is with Katie Maitland, a recent graduate of our Masters of Developmental Trauma program here at Texas Christian University. Katie began her career as a middle school teacher in New York and eventually learned about TBRI through the KPICD online course, TBRI and Trauma-Informed Classrooms. She began using TBRI principles and strategies in her classroom, focusing on connection and felt safety, and marveled at the changes she saw in her students as they became more confident self-regulators, communicators, and learners. While earning her master's, Katie's research focus was intergenerational and transgenerational trauma and how they impact the five B's in TBRI, which is the focus of this conversation. Y'all, this episode is a note taker. Katie's research is fascinating and so applicable to any professional who is using TBRI. And we're so grateful she agreed to join us on the podcast to talk all about her research and some very straightforward ways to apply it. So without any further delay, please enjoy this conversation between our host, Sir Mercado, and our guest, Katie Maitland. Hey, Katie, welcome to the pod. Hi, thanks for having me. I feel like, did we start talking about this like way back in February? Yeah, I was at uh, practitioner training. Yeah, and now it's July and you were um, like anxious about it and, and you were anxious about all the work you had to do to get here. So first of all, congratulations on being here. This is a big deal. Thank you. Yeah, we're super excited. So would you share just a little bit with us about how you landed at TCU, kind of what your pathway was here and, and what drew you into the program? Of course. So I am a special education teacher in New York. That okay. was the start of my career in 2013. And I loved it. I loved my kiddos. I loved working with their parents and the community. But I always felt like there was something missing. There was a piece of working with the kids and working with the parents that felt and it was lacking and I couldn't quite figure out what. And then in 2019, I saw a presentation by you and Dr. Casey Call about TBRI and trauma-informed schools. And it was like, like the heavens opened up and started singing. And I was like, this is what I've been missing for the first part of my career. This is what I need. Mm. So I went to my colleagues, my paraprofessionals in my classroom, and I said, I want to change the entire structure of our management system on its head. 
And fortunately, I had two wonderful women working alongside me and they were like, sure, teach us what you got. What are we doing? Oh, Um, my gosh. So over the course of probably a weekend, I went and restructured everything, started to devour everything TBRI that I could. The podcast books, recordings, I think I watched every Dr. Purvis video I could lay my (laughs) hands on multiple times and started to switch the culture of the classroom and watched my kiddos thrive. They became more confident in their ability to communicate instead of using behaviors to get their needs met. And they knew we had their back. And so when they had that felt safety and we were connected, their learning accelerated, their ability to communicate with us and with people outside of the classroom just exploded. And then I had my colleagues asking me on occasion, so this student kind of blows up my classroom and she doesn't behave that way for you. What's the difference? What's going on? What are you doing? And then I was able to share it there. And it was incredible to watch this happen just over a couple of years. And then I kind of hit the limitations of what I could learn independently, but I wasn't satisfied. I still wanted to learn more. So I, I applied for the DETR program thinking, I'm not going to be accepted. So it'll just be confirmation that I'm where I'm supposed to be and that'll be good. And then I was. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, very quickly had to kind of shift my thinking from this is not going to happen to I can actually do this. And so with the help of my family, my colleagues at work, and the people that kind of have become my Texas family, I made the transition and started the program last year. And I have loved being here ever since. So you went from being a classroom teacher with high needs kids mm-hmm. to, a, in your mind, a dream application to now you went from living in New York to living in Texas. Yes. I think you had a lot of changes that happened in a really small amount of time. I mean, even like your professional changes, that's a mm-hmm. that's a big undertaking to to make that switch and make that happen. And so many people are afraid of it. So kudos to you. Um, I was afraid of it when I first learned TBRI. So Mm -hmm. it's no, no shame for anybody. We're all learning, but Mm -hmm. would you tell me what is, what does DETR stand for and how does it fit into um, TCU? So DETR is developmental trauma. That's the name of the master's program here at TCU. So it, runs out of the KPICD or Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. And so there are a handful of students here, part of my cohort. We started together. We wrap up giving our presentations together tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And we get to spend a year learning all about trauma in the brain and how it develops, how to understand the research around it. And then we get to spend the year learning all about TBRI from its theoretical foundations all the way up to the practical applications of what we do with kids and how we can help their growth and development. And the really cool thing amongst the five of us, we were actually talking this morning before we did our practice presentations we noticed that not only does it do amazing things for the kids that we are shifting this culture to a TBRI implementation and just lifestyle. But as we're practicing it and doing these things, it also does a transformational work in the person that is using TBRI and 
having that be the mode which you communicate and interact with kids, it does a transformational work in you too. Mm -hmm. um, and I can say this with confidence for my cohort because we've all had this experience, but I know it's very true for me. This mm -hmm. year of learning and practicing and engaging and seeing its effectiveness has done transformational and kind of healing things in me as I've worked through this program. So it's been really cool. Gosh, and I really appreciate you saying that. One of the things that I often think is that the using TBRI and, and getting into, you know, trauma-wise care is really about changing adults. Mm -hmm. Because if we can get healthy, then we're able to go to a place with kids that isn't punitive, that isn't harsh, right? Like it, that we actually have so many more tools in our toolbox once we get to a more healthy place, once we understand our attachment and our histories and how to move forward within healthy relationships. So I love that that's been part of y'all's experience as a whole. Um, how long is the program? One year? It's, yep, it's a year. So we start in June and we end in July. So just over. Okay. Just over a year. And it's, mm -hmm. it's only in person. It's only in person. I know there have been talks about moving it online, but that hasn't come to fruition as of yet. So right now it's in person and I have not had an online experience in learning. So I don't know how that works, but for me personally, I couldn't do this if it was an online program. I needed to be here, but I know that there are people that are night and day different from me where that online program would work. But mm -hmm. I am very yeah. grateful to be here in person. Yeah, I'm I'm one of the people that's um, begging for the online mm -hmm. just so I can get my master's and, and be done and, and have the experience too. But I completely agree with you. I think that in person is the way to go. And Fort Worth is a pretty cool town and you're around really cool people. And, mm -hmm. um, but yes, so for our listeners that are begging for a virtual version, it does not exist right now. So our, our master's, um, in developmental trauma is only in person in Fort Worth. Um, and so you can check out our website to learn more about that. Okay. Thank you for sharing about that. Would you share a little bit about the research and what you've learned about and what you wrote your paper on? I read it, and I was telling um, a colleague earlier, I don't read really long papers well. Like usually I get into the abstract and then I go find the parts that really intrigue me, which is actually not how you're supposed to do it. But <laughs> I am not um, a, like a strong, uh, I don't have a strong research brain. And so mm -hmm. sometimes I get lost in it. I loved every ounce of all 30 some odd pages of your paper. And I read every last word. So A, well done. And um, yeah. B if you would just share with us a little bit about what you did, and then we'll talk about it some more. Sure. So I decided to research intergenerational and transgenerational trauma. And this came about for me through a series of experiences. And the culminating one happened here in Fort Worth while I was a student here. I had kind of a, a normal medical procedure. I needed to do an MRI on my knee. And I went through the process and I was totally fine. And at the end of the procedure, the nurse came in and she said something to the effect of, you did a really good job laying still. Mm. Now, one would normally consider that you would say thank you or like put the comment off as something, you know, nice that she had to say, but that's not the experience I had. The first thought that came into my brain was I've had a lot of forced practice. 
and my body went through this like rapid fire sensations of I was freezing cold and then I was burning hot and then I was numb and it felt like I had like pricklies like when your foot falls asleep and it starts waking up mm-hmm. in a matter of seconds and I recognized that the fight to stay present was on um so I engaged all the regulation strategies that I knew and that I had in my pocket to keep myself in the present moment, to get myself safely home. And then when I was able to go back and think about it some more, I'm like, okay, I like pretty much everybody else I've talked to has had a history of harm in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. But those that comment, that thought that I had and the body reaction that I had don't match my history of harm. So what is happening? Um, And I blame Dr. Call for this, which she knows and (laughs) has like quasi accepted the blame because I, when we came in, she had told us about the research that she's done and encouraging us to find research topics. And one of the things she said is often really good research is me search. And I was like, no. And then this happened and I was able to find people that I trust and that I could work through this and start to understand why my brain thought what it did, why my body responded like it did. And it just got me really curious because we work with kids who may or may not have experienced harm, may or may not be in in challenging places or challenging situations, but there could be more under the surface that they may not be aware of. And we as the caregiver may not be aware of. So I wanted to deepen our understanding of what it looks like and what intergenerational and transgenerational trauma, the impact that it can have on what we call the five B's. So biology, brain, body, beliefs, and behavior, Mm -hmm. and how transgenerational trauma and intergenerational trauma can impact the five B's and how that can manifest itself in the people that we're interacting with. That is so good. And I just, um, I don't know if you remember this, but we were standing in the hallway at camp last fall and I was like, Hey, how's it going? And you were like, I'm getting ready to go for an MRI. And I think about that every time I've thought about your research and how like you had, my gut says you had no idea in that moment that that MRI was about to change the trajectory of your research and what you were going to learn about. Absolutely not. I, having a teacher background, I fully anticipated using TBRI and researching TBRI and actually teacher burnout and teacher stress levels, and then how children understand and perceive teacher stress. And then using TBRI as the framework to help teachers so that they can in turn help kids. So kind of this trickle down effect of administrators, Mm -hmm. your teachers are dying on the vine. Can we get them some help? And that's good. And I think eventually I still want to do that research, but in the course of one doctor's visit, my, like you said, my entire trajectory of research flipped on its head and I ended up doing the me search that my brain screamed no when (laughs) Dr. Call was like, this is really effective research. Ultimately, it's I ended up doing it anyway. <laughs> I've known Casey, I think, for over 10 years now, and I have never heard that line. And I'm going to um, have a chat with her about why I haven't heard that before, because <laughs> I really do love that. And I think that even the idea of like me search being a starting point for TBRI is is just that's that's so catchy. And I really, really like it. OK, so 
I'm not a scientist. You may have gathered this. I like very, very simplified explanations that that we could even teach to a kid. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain in just, you know, everyday language, what, what is epigenetics? What is that? So epigenetics is the study of how genes can be turned on or off without changing the DNA sequence itself. So epigenetics is not a change in the DNA, but it changes the way that the DNA is expressed through environmental factors. So it can be turned off, turned on, turned higher, turned lower, depending on the environment one finds oneself in. So an environment of abuse, of geography, of socioeconomic status, those kinds of environmental factors, just to name a few, the list is quite exhaustive, can change how your body expresses things that kind of represent themselves in your physical body or what we call your phenotype. Um, okay. okay. So your experience with the MRI mm -hmm. was basically an a, not tied to an experience that you personally had, but an experience that lived in your genes. Correct. So our kids are having experiences. And, and, and one of the things I love that you did in your paper is that you explained what epigenetics are. Um, and I could understand it through your explanation. And I've done a little bit of study myself on it. But um, as you were explaining it, then you brought it into how does this impact the five Bs? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that that you said in your paper is, um, and so I'm, this is a direct quote, I hope you don't mind me quoting your words, but um, bringing them back to you because they're brilliant. You said, as we engage with children displaying challenging behaviors, they may not completely understand their needs because the need is hidden in their DNA from transgenerational histories of their families. Their biology communicates with their brain that there's an unmet need but the brain cannot yet discern the language of the biology. And I think about, you know, we task our caregivers with understanding the need behind the behavior. And literally, I can't tell you how many times when I've been out teaching, how many people say, what about when the kids don't know what they need? And now for the first time in my work, I can literally say, you're absolutely right. Like they have a history that's telling them they have a need. They have a brain that's trying to explain something that their brain doesn't understand. And all they have is behavior to say something's not right. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm pushing and pulling against something. Um, how do you think we can use that information to help caregivers? I think for me, what it did as a caregiver in the form of a teacher Mm -hmm. is it gave me permission to take a step back mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to see my kiddo with more compassion and a deeper understanding of when they're showing me or telling me they don't know, it may actually be true. They really may not know. Right. So then my job then becomes being a compassionate detective. Mm -hmm. And we try and we fail and we try and we fail and we try again and eventually we're successful. But through all of those trials of trying to figure out what do you need? How can I help you? Unfortunately, we may never know the answer, which 
I don't like as a teacher brain where there is an answer. Right. Um, right. But what we can do is we can help the child understand there's nothing wrong with you. Mm. You are not wrong. You are not bad. There's something going on in your brain and your body, and we're going to move heaven and earth to try and figure it out. And while Mm -hmm. we do that, let's figure out a way for you to get this need met using your words or using a signal instead of using a big behavior. Right. Um, So I just, it allowed me to recognize that I may not be able to help them find the answer but I can help them find a solution and help them find people that may be able to help them find the why behind the behavior, if it's hidden or the need behind it. And then knowing I have this huge, amazing community as a practitioner, as a student in this program, I have a community of people that I can go to when I'm unsure Mm -hmm. and using those resources and flipping my scripts on its head and not being afraid to talk, not being afraid to say this kid and I are struggling and I need some outside input. And then that, that compassionate detective lens, then I can also show the kid in this process that I'm still here. I've still got your back. We're still good. I am more than willing to sit with you for as long as you need me to be here while we figure this out together. And that just creates that connection and that felt safety so that when we do come across challenging situations, we've got that foundation to build off of. Man, you just, you literally, I don't know if you saw it, but you just totally brought a tear to my eye because oftentimes I think about telling the kid, like it's it's you and me, Dr. Purvis taught us, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. you and me against your history. It's not me against you and your history, which is if I'm looking at behavior, it's, it's me against the kid and their history. Right. Mm -hmm. And and if I'm looking at need, it's, it's you and me together, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody say like, I don't know. And this, and you don't know, but we're going to go together and figure it out Mm -hmm. moving forward. So we're going to ask our resources. We're going to ask other people. We're going to try some new things. We're going to do some new things. And I think, you know, you're a grown adult. You've already had a career you're in the program now. Um, even though, uh, when you told me you had already been a teacher, I was wondered if you started at like four, but like you, you have a massive amount of experience under your belt already. And to be able to link arms with a kid and say, let's, let's go find out together because there might be somebody that knows something that we don't Mm -hmm. gives our permit, our kids so much permission. And then I think, you know, secondly, when we can explain this stuff to our kids, we, we can remove the shame Mm -hmm. of it and I remember I know you know Cindy Lee and she tells a story of a little boy that she taught about his brain and the differences because of the trauma and she explained it like a bear in the woods and you know constantly flipping the lid and he Mm -hmm. he every week would come in and say how he felt like such a bad kid and she taught him that and the next week he came in bright-eyed like like he had some truth and he just said, there's a bear in my brain and you have to get it out. You Mm -hmm. have to help me get it out. And that's the thing of like, when we link arms with these kids, there's no shame in knowing this. It actually Mm -hmm. removes shame. Um, So I I just really love that. And then I thought additionally, I, I keep thinking back to your MRI experience and because of your, um, experiences, understanding regulation, you knew what was happening, Mm -hmm. not fully, 
you, mm -hmm. you I don't know if you still if you know the whole story or not yet that's yours but you knew I'm dysregulated something wrong my body is totally flipping out and I've got the skills to stay present to stay calm mm -hmm. not to disassociate or do any of those things but just to be here in the moment but our kids don't have that mm -hmm. right all they have is get me the heck out of here in some way shape or form and mm -hmm. so I just I just love everything that you just said about that I'm I swear I have learned so much since reading your paper um okay let's move on to the brain and I know in your paper you said the research is still really emerging in this and there's not as much as you would like for there to be out there and maybe that'll change one day hopefully it will maybe you'll lead a charge on that we'll see <laughs> I guess we don't know what you're going to do next but um if there was anything you learned about the brain regarding you know intergenerational transgenerational epigenetics trauma what what would you want people to hear it really it does rewire the brain the job of the brain is to keep you alive it is to keep you surviving and it does a really good job at that it's doing the best it can with what it has and what it has to work with but it's not always the most helpful thing either right um, it and I just I want people to understand that somebody's response to a harmful event is not their fault it's right their brain's way of trying to make them as safe as possible in the moment and afterwards it's going to go into like full on hyperdrive with all your other body's mechanisms for keeping you safe. And it's running the show. So if your brain tells you to run, your body's going to start running. Right. And so when we have kids that seem to go from zero to 60, and we're not always sure why, it's because something in the environment is telling that kid's brain, you're not safe, run. Mm. Yes. And Ooh. When that happens, this this little kid who or older kids sometimes who may not fully understand how to negotiate with your own brain and to stop and think, am I actually in danger? Is that person actually a threat to me? When you don't have the capacity to do that, all your brain is going to do is say run and your body's going to say done and you're off. Right. So it then becomes, again, our job as this compassionate detective to start scanning the environment, start talking with the kid again in a moment of calm after this has happened, hopefully before this next event happens and say, okay, what did you see? What did you smell, taste, touch, hear? What around you made your brain go, you need to run? Mm -hmm. And I've had kiddos of mine where math, that was the thing that made them run. Oh, yeah. Me so, too. And they knew. I mean, yeah. So these stats was it for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Get me out. They knew we had, you know, here's our schedule. It's posted on the wall. We know what's coming next. And they would be great for the first two hours of the day. And then we would end literacy. And the next thing was math. And all of a sudden my kid was out. Done. And so... It took us a while to figure it out. We were wondering, like, is it the snack? Is it the drink? Is it a seat? Is it the lights? Is it a service that he has to go to? Like, it took us a little while because he couldn't articulate to us what it was. And then we, as we started watching and paying more attention and actually keeping a journal of 
when he gets dysregulated and the behaviors that we see in different moments, we started to see the pattern. And something about math, he did not like. His brain told him he was not safe to stay in here and do the math. So he was out the door the second he could get out the door. And so we started to work with him on, okay, we see this. Now, what do you need? And it took Mm. us a while to figure it out. He's got to work this out in his brain. And so we would try things. Do you need to sit somewhere differently? Do we need to have the lights off? Well, what we figured out is math like made his body feel tingly. Like it kind of made his body feel uncomfortable. So one of us at the start of math, before we actually, before I formally announced like the last transitional piece to get to math, one of us would go over and start just karate chopping his back. Oh, okay. And then one, whoever wasn't karate chopping his back, usually me would make the formal announcement that we're transitioning to math. And I was able to karate chop his back once and you could feel the tension just drain out wow. of his body. And I was like, oh, that is so cool. Yeah. So, yeah. It, but it, it really was something about math for him was just, my brain says I'm not safe and this is not okay. And I don't like this. So I'm going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And we had to spend several months trying to figure out what's not okay. And how do we make it better so that we can keep you in here, keep you learning what you need to learn, but also meet this need and create safety around math. That's incredible. I get goosebumps with that story. I think part of it is like, I keep hearing this theme from you of like, we don't have to have all the answers. We just have to keep trying, right? You even said we had a journal. So we started mm-hmm. taking notes on what's going on, what's leading up to this. And and I think math is just a thing, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> I could be wrong, but it is not my favorite thing for sure. Um, but I, I can remember I worked in a school one time and I was like kind of trying to support this kid in the second grade and and math would come around and it was the same thing every day. And we ended up having him walk to the counselor's office. He would go eat a pack of like fruit snacks and get some of that proprioception in mm-hmm. and he'd go right back and he'd be able to, to do it. And they tore it up. So we had like one problem at a time, mm-hmm. but right. Like it's the detective work behind it. And if our kids don't know, and we don't know, then we just have to keep looking. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if they're if my body has a response to something and I stay curious about it, then I'm going to keep going until I figure it out. And it's just like you hear about even like when autoimmune things are discovered, people have gone to the doctor for years, but they keep going because there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I just love that you're pursuing these kids. OK, let's move on to the body. Um, you know, this whole section was completely fascinating to me because we understand, right? Like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We hear those Mm -hmm. kind of phrases a lot, which, which is really us identifying that genetics is a strong, a a strong connector, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people, you know, we've heard things over and over and over about how much, um, genetics play into looks, mannerisms, all of the things, um, you said in your paper, the body holds our past and present while moving us towards our future, mm-hmm. influenced by those things that have come before us, those we interact with, and the environment we find ourselves in. So just to just to stop at that, so the things that came before us, which mm-hmm. is what happens in the gen- next generation back, right? Like, what did my parents do for mm-hmm. my girls? What is happening within my body? What am I bringing to the table, right? So those we interact with. So what's happening in our daily um, 
and the environment. So as caregivers, when we think about that, there's one whole component we have zero control over, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you continue on. Our physical presentation can tell an onlooker, such as a caregiver, a lot, but way more is happening under the surface that can impact our, sur our survival and our ability. So when you say, you know, more is happening under the surface, what what should we be aware of? What What do you, like, I get the idea, but like, it's within our bodies. How do we stay in tune to what's going on? I think that attunement piece comes from interoception, understanding mm. how your body tells you how it feels. Mm -hmm. um, so how you know you're hungry, how you know you're thirsty, how you know you need a stretch break, how you know that you know something about the situation you're in isn't quite right and you need to find a way to remove yourself. Mm -hmm. So it's understanding how your body sends you messages to get you to do something. Mm -hmm. um, or to respond to something or to react to something if a response isn't warranted, but you need to move now, kind of like that bear in the woods. Like, right. You're not going to sit there and ponder, huh, that is a bear. And I think I should move. You're just going to go. Um, so that interoception piece, becoming attuned to how your body communicates what it needs, um, I think is is the piece that's under the surface because a lot of people I have found and even myself, I sometimes don't recognize when I'm hungry until I get the headache that is so bad and nothing is helping mm -hmm. it. And I finally eat something and the headache's gone. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's learning your body cues and mm -hmm. how it's telling you, I need you to pay attention to me and I need you to do something about something. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I read as I was reading this and I think, you know, it, it, they, they came in order. Right. So it was the um, the um, biology. Right. And then we talked about the brain and then we talked about the body. And as I was as I was reading what a lot of us do is we start to think about our own experiences. Right. That me search thing is, is real. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, oh, shoot, like I am. I have worked really hard not to pass my history on to my girls, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, I have really wanted that to be something, you know, I had two things I wanted to do. I, I didn't want to pass on my history and I did want to pass on Spanish. And I, I didn't, I don't think I did either because now I understand that even, you know, on a cellular level, um, they've got some of my history with them, mm -hmm. but, but what I have now that I understand how it's impacting our brains, how it's impacting our, right. Not, not just mine. There's two is that I can give words to that. And mm -hmm. I can give language to that, to say like, Hey, listen, this started long before you and I, and I'm doing a lot of work. And, and I did a lot of work to try to hope it didn't pass on, even though I didn't learn TBRI in time for like, prenatally but you know I have worked hard at it and 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 I just keep having hope moving forward that as we keep putting these things together that you know it's not a parenting fail if something goes wrong it's it's an opportunity for me to continue to talk about the the history that we carry mm -hmm. um that we don't even know right and so I just I love how this is all building together um, the belief system for me is a big soapbox. Um, we probably could have a whole huge conversation about that later, but I really think we have now that we understand more 
and more about trauma. I think we have a huge obligation to be the truth tellers in our kids' lives and um, and tell them who they really are, not based on their behavior, not based on their experiences, now not based on how anybody else valued them. But I think I don't need to say like, you're 10 years old, why can't you tie your shoe? I need to say, let me help you, right? Mm -hmm. What do we need to do? Um, so um, in your section on the belief system, I I had never read about the transmission of beliefs through generations. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense. Of course, it makes sense. I've thought about it before, but I haven't actually had all of that, like from in a condensed way for me to look at. Um, would you talk more about that and how those kinds of beliefs that get passed down um, not only bring comfort, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, they really bring a lot of comfort, but also how they can bring challenges and and how as the adult caregivers, we might need to be aware of, when, aware of when it's time to let go of some things. So this was probably the most challenging section for me to read mm -hmm. and research and write because okay. this, this hits close to home. Um, I have, as I've learned and journeyed and, and been fortunate enough to experience some healing and some growth, I've started to recognize the, the, the messages I believe and the things that I can't quite identify where they came from, mm -hmm. but I know that this thought is pervasive. It, mm -hmm. it spreads across every interaction. Everything I do is looking through the lens of this belief. And then I realized how detrimental it was and then needed to start to do the work to, to remove that and to start processing things through truth. Um, so I really loved the the primary article in this because it talks about the the transmissions of family messages or the wisdom of the elderly. And I love that term. I think it's so I do cool. too. Mm -hmm. um, but the need for it, because the original purpose of these messages is to keep the next generation safe. It's right. to tell you a story or give you a piece of information that where the hope is if you have this, if you believe this, if you act in this way, if you trust my words, then you have a better chance of survival and safety. Mm -hmm. And I think that's huge. That is so important. And it can come out in a whole bunch of different ways. And as I was preparing for the presentation, I was reviewing this section and I, the song Ring Around the Rosie popped into my head. Mm. That's a transmission of the wisdom of the elderly. And now we use it as just a kid song we sing while we're circling around and then we all fall down. Right. But that's not the original intent of that message. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so to see the transformation of the message across the generations where its original purpose was for safety and now its purpose is a kid song where we can get your bodies up and moving mm -hmm. and get some vestibular and proprioception in there. It's just, it's really cool to see how that transition happens. And that transition was not necessarily a bad one. Right. The harm comes in when messages are contradictory or if a message, it loses the why behind the message. And so it can cause more harm as part of the responsibility of the generation receiving that message is to trust it completely. No right. substitutions, no changes, no edits. It is wisdom that somebody who knew something more than I did shares with me. And now my job is to hold it and act on it 
like it is complete truth. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it may not be that anymore. So an example of Ring Around the Rosie is just, it's a fun way to see it transition. I mean, the initial was to keep you safe, to protect you. And now it's a fun song that we can get kids moving. It becomes unhealthy when messages conflict. For example, always obey adults. Mm. Don't trust to strangers. Now, those oh. are two very good pieces of wisdom. But what if there's harm happening in the home and a stranger is the one that can keep you safe or help you get mm-hmm. safe? Mm. Now you've got conflicting messages. And in this kid's head, the person who is supposed to give me safe and get me safe and keep me safe is the person causing harm. Mm-hmm. And I need to talk to and trust a stranger to help me become safe again. Mm-hmm. So that's when it can become unhealthy. It can right. also become unhealthy when we lose the understanding of the why behind the message. So for example, eat everything on your plate. That's a message I grew up with and I've had to navigate. Uh-huh. And it's not necessarily a bad message, but a lot of those messages came from times of famine. Right. Where what we have to offer you is on your plate. And if you don't eat it, you will starve. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, unfortunately, we still see that happening. But in other cases where you have the option to use that interoception and say, my body's telling me it's full right now. Mm -hmm. I don't need to continue eating. I can save it and have it as a snack. I can eat it at a later date. There's other options, but I don't have to finish what's on my plate because my body is telling me that I'm no longer hungry. Well, then you have to put that up against the message and it becomes confusing again. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I think there's sometimes, Katie, that we like things come through our belief system into action and mm-hmm. we don't even know why. Right. Like I, I can remember telling my girls when they were little, like, you got to finish what's in front of you, you know, or, or and, and things like that. And it was just because somebody said that to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I did. Truthfully, I didn't really care. Like it, it, it wasn't a big thing for me mm-hmm. until I was willing right? Like until I got to the place of, of questioning my own things and what I was doing and why I was doing them. And there, there were literally so many of my behaviors as a young parent pre-TBRI who did things because that's just the way they were done. Mm-hmm. And that fell into my belief system, but it wasn't something that I had analyzed a lot. It was just mm-hmm. like, this is how things are done. You know, kids listen to adults that, you know, mm-hmm. da, 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 da. And I want to have respectful kids. It's very important to me that my kids are respectful. Of course. Um, but but I earn it too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's an interesting thing. I, I really appreciate the way you brought that together. And that section was really profound for me. And, you know, like I said, like you think about how we get to places where um, certain things are really powerful to us and they should stay that way. But I had never thought about the the messages that were wrongfully you're wrongly powerful now Mm -hmm. that did serve a purpose at some point, but not anymore. So our last section is behavior. And I feel like it's the same in any, any time I talk about the five B's, 
by the time I get to behavior, I think, do we really need to talk about this? Because, right, like our, the other four really lay the groundwork for us to understand, like, we just got to see the why behind the behavior. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is, that's the end of it. Um, Is there anything you want to add talking to people about behavior and epigenetics and historical trauma and all of those things? I think some of the biggest things I liked about doing the research in behavior was understanding some of the differences in the types of behavior. I had never really thought about it a whole lot. And I understood, you know, behavior and it's it's what we see and it's what kids show us and and we need to find the need behind the behavior so that we can meet it. And then eventually we can start to work on transitioning the behavior to a more productive one to meet the need. But what helped me understand behavior deeper was looking at the three categories of behavior. So internalizing behavior, kind of the things I do inward to and with myself, externalizing behaviors, you know, the behaviors that we typically think of when we're thinking of a kid behaving and kids showing us what they need through their behavior, those external things I'm going to yell at you, I'm going to kick the chair, I'm going to push over the table, I'm going to, so the the things that we see expressed outward. And then to have kind of a silver lining of pro-social behavior, which is the behavior that you do to serve others, to help, like volunteering. Um, I think of the classic example of you know, walking the person across the street, mm-hmm. uh, the things that you do, not with the expectation of having anything returned, but just to serve out of Mm -hmm. the kindness that we have. And so that helped me look at behaviors and understand that externalizing behaviors are pretty easy to see. They're they're pretty easily identifiable. And pro-social behaviors are pretty easy to see. They're pretty readily identifiable. But one of the things I want to pay more attention to is internalizing behaviors because those so often can stay quiet and hidden. Mm -hmm. And it really takes an added layer of detective eyes, I think, to see what are these kids doing with and to and for themselves to kind of maintain their window of tolerance and to kind of keep themselves in the lane where they think they need to be, even though we as adults may see that it's not good in in the long run or in the outcome won't be as good. Right. Um, so I think to me, that was, that was really helpful in terms of mm. now I want to take all of this and go do things with it. And that shined a light for me on some of my behaviors that I was just like, well, this is what I do. And it is what I keep myself safe. And I'm like, oh, but that was an internalizing behavior that was expressing a need, but nobody could see it and nobody right. recognized it because I did keep it to myself And sometimes I would let it slip through the cracks or let a little bit be seen as a cry for help. And oftentimes it was answered, but a couple of times it just, it didn't get seen. And I had to kind of work through it myself because I wasn't willing to let that be seen enough with somebody that I trusted to get help. Right. And and then I think we turn around and, and that can turn into a whole nother set of bad beliefs, bad feelings, hurt. Yeah. And oftentimes the people around us don't know, right? Like even as an adult, if we're doing our work, we're going to find like, when are we, when are we doing these internalizing behaviors mm-hmm. and, and not expressing them? And then we're disappointed that the people around us don't react. Well, yes, it is actually my job to communicate 
what I need mm-hmm. in a way with the right safe people. And so it's, it can be like a vicious cycle behaviorally yes. for us. And, and then we see a lot of those negative coping and negative behaviors come out. Okay. Let's take a little deep breath. I feel like whew, we've been on a journey and I love that you, you titled the next part of your paper, the healing journey. So um, let, let's kind of turn around a little bit and let's talk about like, now that we understand it, what now? And uh, if, if, if you can't see the video of this, Katie's like tapping her fingers together. She's so ready to talk about like, what can we do? So you, as you shift into the healing journey and talking about that, and that's something we've really begun to explore in our TBRI practitioner trainings is the journey and the healing journey. You identified four options that we can engage with to um, really help us create healing. And, and, you know, a lot of them really start with the adults. Some of them are with the kids, but um, again, would you walk us through those? The first one you listed was core language approach. Yeah. So core language approach, I found fascinating. Um, Mark Wallen wrote a book that said, started the title as it didn't start with you. The inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. And I read this book not too long ago is one of those books I had sitting on my shelf for a really long time. And I'd look at it and be like, "Mm, not yet. And (laughs) um, after moving to Texas, I actually, and experiencing this this process with going through the MRI, I, I picked it up because I was like, this actually might help me because what's happening is not mine, but it's gotta belong to somebody that's close to me. Um, and fortunately I have been able to learn and understand more of where it comes from. And so that has been helpful. But as I read through this book, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And he does a really good job of walking you through not only the process, but you actually get to engage in the process while you read the book. Oh, And so I just, I found that fascinating and I did. And what I realized was this core language approach, he defines core language as like kind of idiosyncratic words that don't necessarily mean a whole lot to you in the moment, but they're repetitive and they're constant. And it's a word or a phrase that just keep coming up and coming up and coming up no matter what you do. And I recognize I've got some of those. So we've been, okay. we've been working on that. Um, but what he does is he uses that language to help the participant uncover what's going on. Um, so oftentimes we find that when somebody experiences trauma, what they want to do is hide it because of shame or disappointment or whatever else, whatever other reason an individual can come up with to say, this is bad and nobody likes to see bad. So I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it in this box or I'm going to bury it so that nobody can see it. Unfortunately, what happens is it doesn't go away. Right. And oftentimes it, it grows. And what I've learned in my own life and in my research is it keeps coming up generation after generation until somebody is able to do something with it. And so he uses this system of questions and explorations and a genogram, which looks at like takes the family tree that we all can you know picture. And then it looks at family connections and family ties and the mental and physical and emotional health of each family member and then family connections. 
And then you see a pattern of interactions and behaviors and life events that kind of repeat itself in this cycle and start to recognize that this keeps happening, but this generation didn't have the ability to work with it. So it goes down to the next one and it goes mm -hmm. down to the next one. And so he uses the genogram and, and language to really either uncover the event that created this, these words and this sensation and these feelings in your body. And if you can't, then he uses, continues this process, but switches it up just a little bit to make peace with what is unknown okay. and what may not be able to be known, but he still has been able to help his participants expose what can be known or what feelings are there if the situation can't be, and then walk them through recognizing it, naming it, interacting with the process of healing the old wound, and then putting it in its proper place. It is a piece of your history that's not going to go away, but it no longer has to define how you move forward, how you see the world, how you interact with it. Um, so it's the only modality that I found that explicitly deals with intergenerational or transgenerational trauma. And it, the way that he described it is much better than the way that I just did, but no, it, the process is so powerful. No, that was great. And I had, I have two questions. One, or not, well, the first is just an observation, but um, I love that you said like, what about when you like can't remember or you don't know like there's there's holes in the story mm -hmm. which if you're like me and you come from a dismissive attachment style which right we know that theme runs right through families mm -hmm. um then there are going to be gaps right as dismissive people we don't have a lot of those memories we don't have a lot of the information which probably leads to to where we are but um, I love that there's an approach for that because that was my first like uh, stop point of like, I don't, I don't even know how I'd fill it out. And then two, um, are there the core language approach? Are there, you know, practitioners of that model? Do you work through the workbook only or or how does that, it's, it's a, is it a self like pace thing you do within the workbook I just want to make sure and we will link to it in the show notes to the book or, or whatever the program however it's done so the book itself is a self-directed study okay. so he walks you through all of the information in his story which is so cool okay. um so he takes you on a journey of his story and then how he established and created this modality I have not found people in Moss that use this I'm okay. sure it's coming I, I shouldn't say that I hope it's coming right um but right now the process seems to be more self-directed through the book okay um cool I'm gonna check it out for sure that was the only one I hadn't heard of so um let's go to the next one internal family systems blah, blah, yeah. blah. <laughs> <laughs> This is probably one of the ones that I had to fight with a little bit. Uh -huh. um, it That's why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes a lot of effort and energy to recognize that there are parts of yourself that are doing the best they can, but can overreact and aren't right. necessarily always the most helpful. Um, and the fact that, you know, there is this core self that's beautiful and precious and amazing and 
my snarky brain go no <laughs> right right um but internal family systems looks at the internal parts of yourself and how these parts keep you safe um so the the creator of this modality defines three parts and then the self um right. so he defines the firefighters the exiles and the managers and the manager's role is just to do day-to-day -day life to manage your daily schedule to get you up get you moving get you going but it can do that sometimes in ways that aren't very helpful <laughs> and so it can become overly judgmental or overly critical or the interactions that you have with other people while you're kind of using this manager part can be kind of snarky to the point of being mean um okay. but it's it's trying to keep the train moving it's trying to keep right. you safe it's trying to keep you going it just doesn't always if it's overreactive it doesn't always help mm -hmm. um firefighters are there to just keep you safe and that's its only job so when it senses a threat it's gonna come out fire hoses blazing and spray water everywhere even if the fire is a match right, right. It, it, it does not care the destruction it creates its only focus is to keep you safe in this moment right put that dang fire out yes and then the exile is often the part of you that's that's traumatized that's holding mm -hmm. on to the hurt and the pain and so it will kind of take that piece of you and hide it right um and then you have the firefighter and the manager that are going to over respond to that pain to keep that exile from presenting itself with the fear that if that exile comes forward and shares with you the pain and the hurt, it's going to completely upend your entire system. It's going to mm -hmm. upend you. Right. And that is antithetical to the manager and the firefighter wanting to keep you safe and keep you moving. Right. Um, but so we have, you know, these three parts and those three parts need to be worked with and and explored with again another compassionate curiosity right. so in this process you actually you spend time in meditative states where you're engaging with these three parts right. you're asking them questions you're seeing what they're willing to show you what they're willing to tell you and then starting to you thank them for what they did in the moments and the times right. of keeping you safe and then helping them relearn how to do that with who you are now. Right. Oftentimes those three parts are frozen at the moment of trauma or harm. Right. Yeah. So they may still think of you at the age where harm occurred or relational rupture occurred. That was significant enough that these systems needed to kick in to keep you going but then as an adult, you don't necessarily need ooh, that overreactive part to keep you going because you're mm -hmm. older, the situation has changed, you've done some work, or you've at least recognized that I'm not that person, I'm not yeah. that young anymore. Yeah. And so when you can work with those three pieces to bring them back into harmony with each other, 
then this part of you that is the self that is calm and compassionate and curious and all of the best pieces of you has the opportunity to shine and to come right. through and to be more present. Right. And then those four pieces together begin to work in harmony as you walk out with an added kind of layer of wholeness when you can right. see and manage the three parts and allow the self to show. Right. I'll tell you on these last three that you have, because I had not heard of core language approach, but I'm going to look into it now. I'm so curious. <laughs> You know, you have internal family systems, you have making sense of your worth and you have TBRI. And these last three have been absolutely monumental in my life. Like it's, you know, we talk about, um, obviously the, the listeners know my TBRI journey, a lot of it. In IFS, when I first heard about internal family systems, I was like, okay, okay. Like, are y'all real? Like, is this, what on earth are you guys talking about? Mm -hmm. And it probably talk about firefighters it probably took my brain a year of even thinking it through and considering it to get to a place where where my like managers and firefighters would calm down enough for me to start doing the work mm -hmm. I I cannot express how profound that work has been yeah. once I was able and, and that's kind of was my TBRI journey too it was like once I quit fighting it mm -hmm. and I got into it 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 has completely changed everything but I'm telling you when I first heard about internal family systems I was like this might be the craziest thing I've ever heard of but that was me mm -hmm. right like that was me fighting it to begin with and and being skeptical so um yeah great explanation it sounds um like a pretty wild experience, but it is so incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Making sense of your worth. So making sense of your worth is, is really fantastic program created by one of our own practitioners, Cindy Lee, who is amazing. And I actually got to go to the facilitator training of making sense of your worth not too long ago. And I had the impression that I was just going to go learn how to do this so that I could help other people. And it was going to be awesome. And then we <laughs> spent the first three and a half days actually working through the program. And I was like, <laughs> Same. Um, it like, it took my breath away. It swept me off my feet. I, but I got to experience the the freedom from walking through this process. So typically it's an eight week journey where you're getting to explore all the different things that keep people mired in, in unhealthy situations. So we look at defining one's self-worth. And as soon as she's like, we're going to define your self-worth, my brain went, mm -mm. <laughs> nope, like right there automatically. No. Um, but as she was talking about it and describing it, I could feel like kind of that, that internal authentic self being like, but this is who you are. This is who you're right. created to be. So like that tension just kept playing with me for three and a half days. Um, but we adjust, you know, defining your self-worth, identifying needs and identifying lies. That was really powerful for me mm -hmm. to explore my world and my view of the world. And then to understand that when I look at a situation or look at something, I'm looking through the lens of this backpack of lies that I carry constantly. 
well, no wonder my affect is a little wonky sometimes, or I don't always understand people's intent to just be kind to be kind because I think that they need something in return. Right. Um, so we look at, you know, the truth and lies and safety and power and control games and understanding relationship red flags, um, addressing how lies affect behavior, which was another really enlightening moment for me. Like, oh, I believe this about myself or the world or those I interact with. That's definitely going to shape my behavior. Right. Um, and then rebuilding from looking at all of those things. So rebuilding boundaries that are healthy and appropriate and good, even if they're hard, even right. if you have to set a boundary that you know somebody's not going to like, but it is for your health and your safety and your well-being, it's a good thing and it is right and is appropriate and it is okay. And then the last section explores forgiveness. And I was like, okay, well, I've in in large part forgiven the people that have harmed me. And then she said forgiveness of self. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> that that one hurt yeah. um but the freedom that I found in walking through this experience was a lightness mm -hmm. I, I physically felt lighter and I did actually approach Cindy and I was like so I don't know what to do with this I feel lighter like I, right. I'm still definitely eating the chocolate but I feel right. <laughs> lighter so what do I do with this and she's like you don't have to do anything with it mm -hmm. This is who you are continuing to become. Let your body process it and let your brain process it. This is part of the new you. And I was like, mm, don't know if I like that answer. <laughs> but what it has allowed me to do is to see and experience my own thoughts and beliefs and behaviors with a greater compassion mm -hmm. and begin because I'm I'm on the beginning end of this journey but to begin to see myself with the compassion that I look on my kiddos at or that I look right. on people I serve and mm -hmm. what that has done for me is it's magnified my own ability and permission to see my own preciousness right which then is in turn has allowed me to see my kiddos as more precious or those that I interact right. with as more precious and so it's this, I've done the work in and through me and with myself, and it has just increased my capacity to see those that I interact with as even more precious than I did when I started or before I started this program. So it really looks, it builds your own self-worth and gives you permission, or at least it gave me permission to really see my authentic self as somebody who is worth being loved and being seen and being valued and being heard right and giving myself permission to accept care from others mm -hmm. and have my first thought be they're caring for me because they want to care for me not right. they're caring for me and I'm gonna have to do something right. to repay that I'm in debt now mm -hmm. my first thought is now I can receive this care and know that it is care out of the kindness of their hearts because right. they desire to care for me in this way mm -hmm. and all I need to do 
is receive it and say thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? And I got to go to the second part of, of making sense of your worth recently called building freedom within. And I think I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to show up for a friend who was really, really hurting. And that normally would have been about feeding me as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's some that of like, like I need to like, if I'm helping others, then I can feel good too. Mm-hmm. And and ever since doing making sense of your worth and building freedom within, that doesn't even exist. It's like mm-hmm. I can just fully show up for them, be with them. And I've I've planted my whole career on helping other people. Mm-hmm. Right. And now I have a completely different freedom to do it. And so yeah, it it's very, very powerful. I'm super excited. I get to go to that in September. Yeah, that's gonna be a lot of fun. Well, it, yeah. It's hard, but it's so good. It is so yes. good. Okay. I think we know this last one, trust-based relational intervention, TBRI. Talk me through how it how it's a part of your healing journey. So for me, TBRI is so helpful in that the foundation is connection and felt safety. It wasn't until I watched the trauma-informed schools and TBRI presentation that you and Dr. Call did that I recognized there was a difference between, I know my students are safe. We've got all the policies and the procedures to keep them safe. And my children need to feel safe to be able to experience and explore the way that I want them to as learners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I heard that felt safety, that was like, I think that was the moment where I was like, I need TBRI in my life. So I love using TBRI for my interactions with just day-to-day people, but I also love using TBRI on myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where I can connect to the parts of me. I can connect to my sensations, my emotions, and it's safe and it's okay and it's good. And then I can empower myself to meet my own needs if it's I do it for myself or I use my good words and I need to keep, I need to ask somebody to do something on my behalf. Um, And then correcting myself now is a huge thing for me. I used to correct myself with like condemnation and nasty words and, you know, you're so stupid and all of the other things that just keep piling on the shame and the bad. And now I can say to myself, it wasn't necessarily the wisest idea. Let's try doing that again. Like I have walked around my house just doing day-to-day life and was like, oh, I need a redo. <laughs> like that didn't work very well. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Or, I need to give myself a compromise because this needs to be handled. And I also desire this or I want this or I need to do this. Or so for me, it's been transformative in that it has changed the way that I interact with myself, which again has allowed me to change the way to a greater extent, the way that I interact with others. Oh yeah. And Absolutely. so it, for me, it has kind of come full circle to where I really thought that I was going to be here to learn how to walk alongside others and serve others well. That was my goal. That's what I said my goal was in the paperwork to apply. That's what I said my goal was in the interview. And I mean it and I meant it. What I didn't realize was that 
this time in this season of learning and processing and doing life in and amongst the KPICD would do such a transformational work in and through me mm-hmm. and then enhance my ability to mm-hmm. serve well. Yeah. So for me, that's, I mean, we use TBRI and I love it and I use it all the time. But when I started to turn that lens and use it on myself, I started to recognize one, my own preciousness, just in the fact that I am and I'm who I am created to be. And I have passions and gifts and things that I can share with people. And I have the ability to receive the care that I would used to just shrink away from or literally run away from. Like somebody would tell me, I want to do this for you. And I'd be like, nope, yep. Oh, can't, yep. can't do it. But now I'm learning to. And in moments when I do, those are wins for me. And so I'm grateful for the care that's being expressed, but I'm also have a moment of like little celebration that I I received that care and I'm not thinking about I need to repay you or right. I need to do something to to mit, you know, to balance the books. It's just I can receive it, which yep. is really cool. So much freedom. There's mm-hmm. so much freedom. And I just think I love like the intersection of of all of these things. Um, in your healing journey and how they all are hand in glove and fit together. And I mean, I think about, you know, the like leaning into the truths of who I am from making sense of your worth. I, I feel like I TBRI my parts in yes. internal family systems. I'm, I'm literally like, like this morning, I woke up 30 minutes later than I wanted to, and I wanted to go for a walk. And then it like, punctuality is a, a like a thing for me and mm-hmm. so like then I find myself getting into that and it's like wait a second just like you said you want to redo you mm-hmm. know you are precious you are valuable you still have time to walk like you're just gonna you know like mm-hmm. um and and just the intersection of all of those those things that really do create the most authentic self which is which is what the world needs from us right like the the world needs us to be in our most authentic self because we need to be cared for too. We need to be able to give the care um, from a place of of security. So towards the end of your paper, you said these words, you said, as demonstrated in the literary, the literature review, the trauma history passed down from generation to generation will undoubtedly influence facets of one's biology, brain, body, beliefs, and behavior in challenging ways. However, we do not need to let the impact of the transmission of trauma hinder our ability to embrace and show that authentic self to others fully. And I just read that several times. I mean, it just like, you know, when you're in the middle of the messy work mm-hmm. and, and and our work, will I don't believe my personal work will ever be done. I mean, I think, I, I think that's a general rule of the whole idea, but um yeah, like we're just on a journey and the journey mm-hmm. is endless, right? Um, but I just saw like, you know, I want to stop all these patterns in my family. I want to do all these things. And then I I read it again. We do not need to let the impact of transmission of trauma hinder our ability to embrace and show that authentic self to others fully. And it gave me so much hope. And Katie, your work, I don't, I don't know what you plan to do next. And I don't know if you're uh, 
you know, what your game plan is. I know you're nearing the very end of your program, Mm -hmm. um, but your work matters so much and you are going to be a true gift wherever you land. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. It has been a delight for me. Oh, thank you for having me and allowing me to share this information and my passion and in parts of my journey. I am very, very honored. The TBRI podcast is produced by the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU. To learn more about TBRI and the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit child.tcu.edu slash podcast.